The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. Great stuff. All right, well, we're here today with maybe America's favorite trial lawyer, if there's such a thing, Keith Mitnick. And Keith, I'm glad to see you. I haven't seen you in so long, I feel like. It seems like we see, used to see you a lot more before uh, the court system opened you know, back. Things up. have gotten, uh, as COVID eased down and trials eased up, my life has gotten a little more uh, dedicated to the courtroom. But I always love being on your stuff. You do A+, and you do good work for all of us. Well, thanks a lot. And I know you were just telling me before we got on how you just recently got out of the courtroom on Friday. So how did that case go for you and the Morgan team? It was big justice and a very, very difficult case. Anyone knows my books or my teachings, it's all about when you see a hurdle, don't run from it, run at it, and let's figure out how to clear it. Because every case has got lots of hurdles. Well, they had hurdles spaced about every step on this one. (laughs) This one... This was a practice what you preach moment. I basically, I've, I've joked to one of my partners that said, I didn't throw the book at him. I threw both books at him. But it worked. We got big justice in face of a lot of things that could have ended with a very unjust verdict. So I was pleased. Well, tell us a little bit about the case so we can get a better understanding of what big justice is. Look, we all know what gaps in treatment are. Well, I had 420 days a month of treatment in 405 days. When I got in the case, I said, how hell, how long has it been since the crash? (laughs) And we've got two monster gaps. I don't worry about gaps as long as you're aware of them and deal with them. So we had that. We had um, pre-existing laundry list of pre-existing problems at the same body parts, including surgery on one of them. I had two gentlemen that I was representing in the same crash and the judge consolidated them over our objection. We had very little property damage. It was one of these chain reactions, car hit a car, hit us. We had a trailer hit, so there's just you know a little bit of a bent bumper. Um, of course, they were exploiting the hell out of that. We had surveillance of our guys with, they worked, did lawn landscape work. They had the backpacks and blowers and the big pole saws, cutting trees over their head and all that. They had... Um, The medical records had some entries that the defense was all excited about, making it sound like they had all this chronic pain before, when the truth is they were really doing pretty well in spite of pre-existing before. We had a client who went to his, uh, we call them CMEs here, the one that the doctor, the spine doctor, the defense hires to say, it's just a sprain strain. And he was nervous there and had some other parts bothering, didn't mention the main part. So they were making a big deal. And when he said, what's wrong with you, you didn't mention the low back. I'm sure something else will pop my mind. But if you can think of the list of problems, it wasn't a big MRI case for us. It was less showing them on a film. Here it is. We had some of it, but not as strong as usual. We didn't even have a treating radiologist with us. And you put it all together, and the defense didn't offer peanuts. They thought they had no chance. In fact, they just flat said, if you're hurt at all, I don't even know you got a sprain strain. But if you're hurt at all, it's from what you had before. 
we don't think you heard it all. So they went hard on it. And when we got through all of that, and let me add the most important piece. Absolutely believe, beyond a shadow of a doubt, these gentlemen were hurt, and it had a significant impact on their life. It just was hard as hell to prove. If there's a bunch of stuff and you feel like, okay, but when you really know your client's hurt and you really know there's a good chance you're going to lose, that's a heavy burden because you, you let them down. It's for the rest of their life. And now you're insulting them, basically calling them liars. Pretty strong implication, anyhow. So I felt the weight of the world on it. And I happen to have my son. I call him my son. I treat him like my son. He's my stepson, Jacob Barrow. And I wanted him to taste a win here, not that bitterness of losing. So it was a very heavy-duty case for me emotionally, even though I live in a courtroom, and they all are. This one had a little extra. Jury brought back a verdict. Hold on. Before you tell the verdict, what was the final offer they made you before trial to try to get the settlement? I'll tell you this. We cut a high-low. And I can tell you it was a hell of a lot bigger high-low. It was the highs got into the millions. So from we got into the seven figures for the highs. On a case, their numbers were, I don't remember exactly, but, you know, 50 or something before. So we readjusted their perspective pretty dramatically. And we took it because it was a, had some unique issues and unique issues always bring appellate issues. And we had a, what I considered the right jury to do justice in this case. And I didn't know whether we could reproduce that. So I wanted to hold on to this one. So we got a highlight, but our verdict was 2.8 and around 2.8 and $5.2 million for the two people. So they were very good jurors. And, you know, they were walking and looking and normal and and looking normal and all that. They're just living with pain. But I say just. I always tell people, and I told this jury, everybody has pain from time to time. And it's very easy to belittle it. They're like, well, so what? You're in pain. But there's a huge difference between having pain that goes away and having pain that never goes away. Living in pain. And by the way, I don't say living with pain because you know what people say? Live with it. Get over it. Very unempathetic statement. Living in it means you're immersed in it. It's a whole different imagery. But the difference between having pain that comes and goes mercifully and living in pain forever, it's like having an unwanted visitor come to your home and you can't get rid of them. They're an intruder. And you can't even get rid of them by saying, well, I'm going to leave my house. Leave them there. I need a break. They follow you everywhere you go. And so living in pain forever with no hope of getting shaken it. When you didn't, even no matter how much pain you had before that came and went, you weren't living in constant pain. That's a big deal. And we had the right people that could understand it. We gave them the right analogies. We framed it and packaged it in a sincere way. And they got it. And God, when they get it, does it feel good? And it's on us to get them to get it. Jurors know in their hearts I don't teach them something they don't know. I get them to look at it through the right lens. They already know it. I can't convince them pain's bad. They know it. They just think, so what? Everybody's got pain. How could that be a million dollars or more? But if you teach them to tap into what they already know, then they can carry the torch of justice for you in the, in the deliberations. That's what happened here. I don't forget any trial. 
but some of them you remember more. I'm going to remember this one a lot. You brought up some, some unique issues that I want to ask you about. The high-low agreement. How did that come about? And when do you think about, okay, you know what? This is the case. I'm going to ask the defense they want to do a high-low. I'm going to somehow suggest to them they might want to do that. So how does the – because if the plaintiff lawyer goes to the defense and says, hey, let's do a high-low, it shows insecurity in some way. Would be my, I think, a lot of people's concerns. So tell us how you think about that and handle that. Well, let's move away from this case and talk about high lows in general. I typically bring up high lows oftentimes myself. And maybe some of it's just because I've been doing this so long. I don't worry a lot about the other side thinking, oh, he's scared of the verdict. I mean, they kind of know I'm not. I don't need to beat my chest. But even before, when I was younger, if I think it's good for the case, I bring it up. And they can either take it or no. Now, how you conduct negotiations makes the difference between they smell blood or not. But I don't think bringing the topic up makes a shine of weakness. And here's how I bring it up. I say, look, and with especially I love high lows. And I typically wait till the jury's out because I typically feel when we're done with closing, I'm going to make you feel less confident. I'm going to rattle your ass some in closing and in rebuttal. And so that's a good time to do it when they're rattled. And so I usually will go to the side is, you know, is it worth us talking? And I start it this way usually. And it's not a trick. It's, it's what I mean. I say, do you guys got an interest in high-low? You know, I always think it's good for both sides. I always like talking about them. If you have an interest, we'll make the first move. But I am not going to go over there and have a 30-minute hard conversation with my client and you have no interest. So talk to your people and see if they're genuinely interested, not just, well, let's hear what he's got to say. They'd like a high-low if we can work it out. And if your answer is they really would, I will come back and get the ball rolling. And then sometimes they come back and say, no, they want to take the verdict. Okay. And honestly, I haven't gone through it with my client. I'm telling the truth. I don't want to go through that conversation unless there's some encouragement. But when they come back and say, yeah, they're, they're interested, well, then we come back with a high-low. One, I, I figure they're not going to take. They know. I mean, I'm not giving some big secret away. They know you don't start with your last. Years ago, I used to say, this is my last. I mean it and hear it. And no one ever believed me, even though I meant it. And I never could enter into damn settlements because no one, they thought I was bullshit. I just quit trying. So I'll start up here, leave myself room. And you back and forth bracketing. And sometimes you'll have a jury out. I've had judges say, we got a verdict. And we're getting close to say, Judge, can you hold them? I've had a, had a judge hold them in the evening once for an hour while we were negotiating. Because once the verdict comes, they ain't going to be an island. <laughs> They're wonderful if you can get them in the right range. Why? Because now you're protecting your client from a terrible outcome, but you gave something up on the other end. But you also, if you're smart about it, you picked a range that's in, a, you're likely not going to exceed it by a whole lot. But they get something out of it that they don't have to worry about the giant verdict because I have asked for maximum justice. Otherwise, there ain't going to be any worth a damn high-low. They got to feel the heat of that hanging over their head. And they get paid in 20 days, 30 days. You don't have to worry about appeals. It's finality. You get a big verdict and the client wants to know, when do I get my money? It's like, well, you know, they're going to appeal. <laughs> you say, within a month. And that's a good feeling. Absolutely. You said you wanted to bifurcate this case, but the judge didn't want to. But tell us about 
when you have co-plaintiffs, your philosophy on bifurcation or separating the plaintiffs? When I got into it, I was concerned about it. My first thing when our lawyers told me, yeah, we're trying them together. I said, did you agree to that? No, we fought it. Okay. I was like, if you agreed, I'm going to wring your neck. Um, Why do I want to be able to together? And here's my worry. My worry is they're going to see it as one crash and one amount of money, and it's going to hold the numbers down because they don't want, if they know I give him X and I give him Y, that's going to total Z, and I don't want to go to Z. It's going to hold them all down. Actually, haven't tried it. Then I've tried multiple defendants. I don't think I've ever, that I was thinking about it. I've tried so many cases I may have forgotten. I don't remember ever trying two plaintiffs before. I've had cases where we were gonna, and, and then they ended up settling or one of them settled. I think this is the first time I've tried one. It wasn't nearly as bad as I thought. It was a pro and con. Some of that was worrisome, but I explained my worry to the jury in jury selection. I explained it in opening. I mean, I really think they got it. And I came back to it in closing. For goodness sake, please do not short somebody because they're both hurt bad. And it adds up when you look at both of them a lot. You've got to pretend these cases were tried totally separate. You didn't even know anything about it. But here was the benefit. One client did better on the stand in explaining their damages. Well, it elevated his damages. The other was so, I won't even say honest. He was so, because... He honestly was hurt. He was so tough about it, didn't want to sound like a whiner, that he downplayed some of his injuries below what they really were verbally. Thankfully, we had his wife and we had some doctors and we were kind of had to resurrect his damages some because he was honestly downplayed. You hear exaggerating. I think he downplayed them. But it's the same crash and it makes sense if both of them are hurt and they're trying to say there's not a lot of visible property damage, couldn't hurt a flea. We got two fleas hurt. So we got extra proof. It's an injurious, fancy word, collision. So it elevated that. I think the one guy whose testimony came off better lifted him up. Now, I recognized with the jury. I used $15 an hour on a per diem for the one. And on the other, I used 10. And I told him, you know what? He's actually got more body parts hurt. And you could argue it's more than the other guy. I said, but my overall sense listening to the testimony is his fallout is not as bad as the other one. So I'm using $10 an hour for him instead. And I'm telling you, you could see some jurors going, and and it really did feel that way. And I thought, as soon as I said it to him, and I got the client's blessing to make sure you know I didn't insult him with that. And when I said it, it felt so good, and the body language felt such good feedback. They saw it too. And I thought, okay, they know I'm straight shoot. And so once again, trying two cases together, that little bit of difference was an opportunity to show them the reasonableness of your numbers for both of them. It made the bigger number look more reasonable. It made this lesser number look more reasonable. So the net of it is I would, I might not even object next damn time. And at 180 degree turnabout, I was very concerned. It it may have been one of my biggest concerns. And I came away going, I think it worked our advantage. Sounds like it. So, and then one last thing about this case, you said, is this the first time you tried to trial with your um, son, Jacob Barrow? Yeah, Jacob has, we do tobacco. He came to the firm and worked in our tobacco division and did it. So he was there before he was past the bar. But I 
think this is the first trial. He helped with the trial after he was a lawyer, but didn't do witnesses before. This is the first one where he was a participant, and he participated. He did cross one of their experts, put on a key witness. He was in the arena. He wasn't just sitting there whispering. And I'll tell you what I enjoy, because I teach by saying, I'm not a mean teacher. I don't say, you idiot, why'd you do that? But I do say, you did this good, you did this good. Let me tell you how you might do this different. And I was doing it the whole team. It wasn't just him. He did so damn good. I Honestly, I don't know. I had anything I told him he could do better. And I damn sure would. I wouldn't skip over it. It's, he's too important to me. He re- I'm so <laughs> proud of him. But other folks, I had things to say. I got up on a, one of the witnesses across and made one of the mistakes I know so much better than then. They had said something that was a great counterpunch. But I knew if I made the counterpunch with him, he was going to punch back. And I'm doing closing in about an hour. So the time was to hold your powder and bring it out in, in closing, and it would have huge impact, and he couldn't water it down. Nothing the hell he could do about it. And he aggravated me, the witness. I went up to the bench. He brought up my book. Yeah, oh, well, you, you wrote a book. Then I kept crossing me. Well, was that in your second book? And I don't know why he thought it helped him, but he was being such a, such a wise and just smarting off and being combative. What kind of witness was this? Some type of expert, I assume. Yeah, he was an expert witness for the Damascus. An, a- an angry expert witness. He jumped out of the witness box and came down to show the jury something like, you know, real, like he was charging me. He wasn't, but it felt that way. And I'm not one to charge. So it, things were getting heated. And then he finally says, oh, he's a famous med mal lawyer. I mean, can you imagine? This is all going in front of the jury. So I finally had, had enough. I've been putting up with it. And I remember Rick Friedman told me back when, before I wrote, before, when I was in the process of writing the first book, you don't want to put anything in there. You don't want to be told in front of a jury or a judge because they're going to do it to you. And he goes, I don't worry about it because it gives you some authority, but they're going to. But it's the first time I've actually had one do it in front of a jury. But the last smart ass comment, I was pissed. And look, I'm going to be 65 in February. I get cranky sometimes. I was not being Mr. Polish lawyer. Now I'm pissed. And you at this point in career ought to be able to control it. But we approached the bench. And the outcome of the bench conference, let's just say, was unsatisfactory. So I decided, all right, I'm going to rub your nose in this thing instead of waiting. And I did. And guess what he did? Boom, punched me in the mouth. <laughs> and I'm like, I knew. I had a note card that said, save it for closing. And I just decided I was going to punish him. And I did what I knew better. So the beauty of it was, on our first break, I said, all right, all these lessons I'm giving y'all when you, what you can do better. Let me tell you what excuse my language. I said, let me tell you what, I just fucked up. And then I laid it out for them. And they got a big kick out of it. And I thought it was one of the best teaching moments you can ever have, which is we never stop learning. We get better at it. We don't get perfect at it. And so it was an important point. Some points feel good, save them or close. And I didn't save it. I couldn't help myself. I was mad at myself because it backfired, and it was a wonderful chance to share with my boy there a little self-attack. Even though I may tell y'all this, this, and this, I apply it to, it's like I say, I'm my own biggest fan and my own worst critic, and I spend a hell of a lot more time kicking myself in the ass than I do patting myself on the back. So anyhow, it was kind of fun to teach him 
a mistake I made. Wasn't fun making. I went home that night. I called my wife and said, I'm so bad at myself. But it was probably, it actually, he was such a jackass about it. I think it hurt him. But it hurt my pride a little to make a dumbass mistake like that. You won't make that one again. I mean. Why the hell I made? That's the good thing about learning from our mistakes. Hope we learn, yeah. we don't do it again. And, and then you survive it too, which is always a good thing. It's always, when you survive your mistakes, they don't hurt you and your client too much. Yep. So Keith, let me switch gears though. You've been a lawyer for quite some time now. You said you're about to celebrate your 65th birthday. How old were you when you became a lawyer? I went straight from undergrad to law school out. So 25. I'm coming up next year will be 40 years. Wow. That's a good legacy. Tell us about your decision to go to law school and become a lawyer. It's an odd question. I mean, I've got an odd, it's a good question. It's a bit of an odd answer. I knew not one single human being personally as a lawyer. I had no lawyers in the family. No friends of the family were lawyers. I didn't know a lawyer on the planet. My only knowledge of lawyers was Perry Mason. Watch, I'm showing my age. Now we got a million TV shows with lawyers. That was the only one that I knew of. I knew lawyers from Perry Mason. I love watching Perry Mason. And I read a book where there was a lawyer in it. It was one of the first serious books I read as a really young kid. You know, not a little kiddie book, but a grown-up book. And the lawyer made a huge difference in the outcome of a case. And I thought, wow. And it was a really well-written book. What book? Magic, The Magician or Magic or somewhere I got. I don't think it's here. I think it's in my beach place. Went out and found it on e- eBay somewhere. I bought the, an old copy of it. But from the whole thing was this lawyer had a profound impact and someone didn't like the impact. And then they needed a lawyer and went out and hired them. And that's how the book ended. And it really kind of touched something in me. So I don't know whether it was that book or Perry Mason, but it sure as hell wasn't anything else because I didn't know what it was all about, didn't know anyone. But my mom, who's a guidance counselor at another public high school, was told by the guidance counselor at my high school that after I'd become a lawyer, they'd bumped into each other and said, you know, Joanne, I have an old note from it's like elementary school where I always ask, what do you want to be? He said, a lawyer for Keith. And I'm like, I don't even remember wanting to be a lawyer back then, but I can tell you what I remember from, let's say, middle school on. I remember if you said, what do you want to be? I'd say a lawyer. And I'm not really sure where it came from. I never said anything else. It was what I always decided it was going to be, even though I didn't know what it meant, really. So I think it was just maybe I was born with it somewhere. God put it in my brain. You ought to do this. Perhaps it's in your DNA. So you couldn't fight it. Maybe. I don't know. I don't have any in my any lawyers in the bloodline that I know of. But for whatever it was, I'm glad I had that inner voice telling me to do it. Because there are a whole lot of other things I could have done. I'd have been lousy at. So, thank God I stumbled on something. I actually have some natural natural leanings that way. Well, when you were 25 and you first became a lawyer, not. Tell us about where you started working in your journey to where you're at with Morgan & Morgan now, because it's so interesting, Every so many different people's journeys to where they are today. Because if, if I'm talking to them, they must have made it somewhere pretty significant today, but nobody starts out there. So tell us about your journey. I ended up, I started with some lawyers. It's a, I worked for a professor of mine in law school doing research for him, making $10 an hour. Um, he was a gruff guy. Never friendly. One of the smartest people I've ever known in my life. Is Brian Panish your professor? 
<laughs> I mean, that was a perfect description. Except he's actually friendly. He just takes a while to get to know him. Yeah, if you took put some friendly in there, maybe. <laughs> but this guy wrote Moore's federal practice. He was clerking for Judge Moore when they were written, and he claims he wrote them or did most of the work on them. And because of that, he was called in on high, complex, jurisdictional venue-type issues in federal-type cases as a consultant. So he knew lawyers all the way around the country. That's why I went to work. Everyone said, if you can get in with him, he's got, he'll get you a job. So I said, I want to go back to Orlando. I want to be a trial lawyer. I said, do you know who's any really good lawyers? He said, I'd know probably, the, if not the best, two of the top five in Orlando. I said, can you introduce me? Sure. I'm going down next week. You can come with me. And I said, you're going to see both? He goes, they're partners. I said, great. I said, white collar criminal, are they? He goes, they don't do criminal. They're civil. And I said, I want to be a criminal lawyer. He goes, no, you don't. He goes, there's some great criminal lawyers, but the by and far, the percentage-wise, the better trial lawyers are civil. I don't know if that's true, but that's what he told me. I said, well, tell me, what do they do? And he said, you dumbass. You're not paying attention. That's so what he said. And I, said, oh. and I was like disappointed. I want to be a criminal lawyer because it's all I knew. But I said, okay. I said, what time are we leaving? He goes, we're flying. I'd never been on a plane in my life. And I'm scared of heights. And I'm thinking, and I didn't have any money. I mean, my parents are school teachers. I can't pay for a plane ticket. I said, I'll just drive down. He goes, oh, for God's sake, I'll pay for your ticket. I got on the plane. I thought, what if I freak out of here? <laughs> can't handle it. And that was fine. I, it didn't bother me. So we fly down. I meet the two guys. He pulls them in another room at some point, tells them some nice things about me, apparently. So they hired me for the summer. So I clerk with them for the summer. They hired me at the end of the summer when I got out of law school the next year to come back. I never interviewed for anyone else on the planet. And thank you, my that gruff old mean professor of mine who's now passed. And we're not like we were friends after that. He used me, I used him, and we went our separate ways. But he changed my life. Because that introduction, those two guys were the greatest mentors. Not easy mentors, but great. One of them did all PI, and he was a, it's 10% talent and 90% hard work, and you look under every rock and every stone, and you outwork them, and if you don't, you ain't worth a shit. So he taught me that. The other one was the freest thinking, brilliant mind. You think it's a bad fact? Bullshit. It's a good fact, and I'll tell you why. And if anyone's ever read Don't Eat the Bruises, they're going, that sounds like what you're doing. It is. I learned it from him. And I think, honestly, as much as I love him, and he's passed too, I think I got better than he was, and he, he was pretty good at it. But he started me down that path. And so those two guys, and he did more civil, big-time civil litigation. So between the two, there, I could not have a better mentorship. I tried my first jury trial with him two months out of law school. Four months out, I tried my first, by myself, car crash. I tried my first med mal case by myself two years out. So, I mean, I was trying cases when the ink was still drying on my bar license. So, and with, trying it with great lawyers watching and learning. And they, I tried a case, there was no carrying my briefcase. You do this. I'll do it. We just split the trials down the middle. And they'd tell me what an idiot I was if I didn't do it good. And they'd say, not bad if I did, you know, good. And then I watched and I learned and I got cursed out and we did it. And so it, was, it changed my life. In fact, honestly, I'm here today doing this. I wrote the books. Every chance I get, I try to do some brushstroke written or verbal or something in large part because of those two guys. Those two men changed my life. It wouldn't have been the same as a lawyer, 
but for them. And I know not everybody gets that experience. And I feel absolute commitment to pass that on as best I can. I can't be a hands-on come to trial with me and do like they did. But you know what? The next best thing, if I got something I can share, I'm going to share it because someone shared it with me. So I started there. And then ultimately, at some point, one of them died. And then at one point, I had an opportunity to go have my own firm. I left. It was one of the hardest things that I ever did. It was like getting a divorce from the love of your life. Wait, hold on. So let me ask you, though, how long were you with your mentors before one of them passed? The one passed. He had got cancer. When I said I tried my first solo med mal case at two years out, it was his case and he had cancer. I said, I can refer it out to someone else or if you think you're ready, you try it. I can't go. And the other one had a big commercial case going. He couldn't go. And it was a small firm's house. And I said, I got this. And I went and tried it. He was dying then. So by three years out, he had passed. So you tried the case for on your mentor was the plaintiff and you represented him in the med mail case on a failure to diagnose cancer. No, it was his trial that he was going to try for some as a lawyer. I got it. No, it was not his case. Got it. There was no med. He just got cancer. There's no nothing. No, nobody to blame for his nightmare. But so anyhow, so then I opened my own firm and then Morgan came along and said, come over and teach us to really try cases, lead up trials for us. And for four years, I said, no. How long did you have your own firm for? Because having your own firm, anybody that has their own firm knows what a nightmare it is. Especially anybody that loves being a lawyer. For people that just went to business school and they just love the numbers and crunching numbers and everything's just a number and a statistic. Right, but they could run a firm because they could be objective about data. You talk about running the numbers. You know, I can run numbers. I can tell you what a per diem is for a damage right. argument. You start trying <laughs> I can to tell run you what an office. 40% is. One third, yeah. those numbers I can run. The rest of these numbers drive me nuts. I don't like the business side of law so much. I'm not good at it. I could be. I just hate it and won't spend the time on it. But people were sending me cases and I was trying cases in my own place. And I, I bought a building and it was an, and small, but it was nice. And I was having a blast, but I hated that side. And But Morgan wanted me to come over there, and he was starting. He wasn't where we are now, and he's advertising, and that was back when advertising made you cringe a little, and and I just wasn't going to do it. But I wasn't. I was watching him starting to grow and take over the world, and I thought, I'm going to be respectful. And plus, he's one of the most entertaining, great guys you ever meet in your life. So we, every year at Christmas, we'd go. He'd take me to a restaurant, and we'd go have dinner, and he'd say, come on. And I'd laugh, and I'd say, man, I love you. I, maybe someday, but not now. And after four years, I finally did. And... I tell people I have one regret. What the hell didn't I do it on year one? I got rid of the nightmare of running my own place. I got free to just try cases. And I've got a lifelong friendship with Morgan. And while I'm not smart my money, he is. And he's guided me to make some smarter decisions. So, you know, <laughs> hopefully someday I'll be comfortable and retire. And so he's been a godsend as a friend, a mentor, business-wise, and opening, giving me opportunities to go. I wouldn't have tried tobacco trials in my own firm, drop 300 grand on a case where you got a less than 50, 50 chance of winning and they're going to appeal it till you're an old man. And I couldn't have done that. But, you know, I went over there and got to take on the cigarette industry and whoop their ass about it. I lost to them, but I whooped them up some big whoopings. And it started building my own personal mark in a new way beyond just people saying this guy's good at what he does. So he gave me opportunities to change the world. Those meetings where he finally convinced me from a professional 
perspective, that in getting my mentors in that are the two most important things that have happened to me in law. What year did you finally accept John's offer and join Morgan & Morgan? I think I'm at 26 years now. Wow. Whatever the, whatever the math is for that. It's been great. And then I came over with some caseload and kept working them, but pretty quickly converted to all I was doing was trying to help other people try their cases and stop having a caseload. So it allowed, I would have never, in my own firm, if I tried three cases in a year, it was a big year. Now, if I prayed three in a year, I would say it's time to retire. Something's wrong. That means you are retired. If you try three cases a year, that is your retirement. (laughs) I I just got out of this one. I'm off this week. I got one starting next week. And I love it. You know, it's stressful, but I'd rather be there. I'd rather be in the courtroom than answering interrogatories, I promise you. Well, that's the part that, like, always, like, for people like you, Raleigh, Panish, Freed, there's no reason you go to the courtroom anymore, except you really want to be there. Yeah. I'm writing... Jacob and the other lawyer, Ben and Brian, who tried it, very talented guys. It was a blast. Really good, class act, talented lawyers. I had such a good time with that team. But I got an email I was working on this morning. I realized, damn, it's time to get come up here and do this. But I'm going to send very soon. It said, the morning you woke up after, the night of, there's nothing like this. The night of, didn't it feel like you just started a fire in your fireplace and it's snapping and popping and shit's flaring up, crackle pop with excitement. You woke up the next morning, your eyes came open and you realized I just did big justice. And now it's like that raging flame is now just settled into a beautiful fire. When you woke up Sunday morning, now it's down to embers. That glow will be with you forever. And there is no fire like that. It never goes out. You're going to carry the embers forever. And that blaze the night before, I don't know anything does it. Now, when you lose, I don't know anything. There are not many things as painful, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Because in addition to the personal elation, I think about those men. We just changed their lives. Not jackpot justice. We can't give them back what they want. Their health. We just can't do it. But we can give them full recognition from a group of people from the community that said, this has changed your life in a profound way. And we recognize that. We respect that. And if you can't have your health back, we ought to have the next substitute. It's a half-assed substitute, but it is all we got. And they now have enough money as a substitute that while they're suffering, they can at least take financial stress out of the equation. And those people are going to remember us in their prayers forever. I mean, who gets to do that? Who gets to stand up for somebody who couldn't stand up for themselves? These men were tough guys. They could take care of themselves. But in this setting, I got to stand up. My team got to stand up. Jacob got to stand up. And it worked. We are some of the most fortunate people in the world to get to call this a profession or a job. As hard as it is, as big a toll as it takes, anybody complains, I say, shame on you. You should be saying thank you. True. Imagine what a thrill it was to try that case with your with Jacob as a father. Just be so, I guess, proud, obviously. I texted his mother. I actually snuck a picture of him. 
at the courtroom. <laughs> you know, he's tall and slender and, and he looks like authoritative. And he's been hearing me talk about it forever. But I thought he's going to be up nervous as hell. Everything I taught him, he's going to forget. I was going to tell him, no, I was nervous too. And I don't worry. He may have been, but you couldn't tell. He was cool as a cucumber. Bombs were dropping. It didn't bother him. He was unflappable. He delivered it well. He sat down when he should have sat down, didn't go too far. You'd have never guessed he's young at it. And it was effective. I was so proud of him. He's going to be a superstar. Well, it helps to have a great mentor. That's not just him. He's got his, my wife, smarter than I am, and practical smart. He's got thoroughbred uh, genes in him. So he's got me training him up, but he's wired right. Well, it's a good combination, but like people like Cal Paris, raised by Rex, it's a little bit of a head start when you, every dinner table, everything, you're just talking. What else is you going to talk about except cases after the end of the day? <laughs> you could talk about it just like so. Yeah, he's always a good been combination. In, and he calls me during the week. I got a question. And so we talk. So I'm giving him everything I got, but giving it and delivering it are two different things. Let me switch gears and ask you some, about some other things that are a little bit personal here. And that is, I mean, anybody listening to this podcast wants to be a better trial lawyer. Anybody that attends a CLE event, either the ones that you put on, and we're going to talk about the the ones that I put on, they're coming because they want to be better trial lawyers. And so let me ask you this question, because we all got our starting points where we're at, and we have to work with what we got. But what do you think would you say the top three qualities are you hang out with a lot of great trial lawyers too, right? The Panishes, the Raleigh's. So you get to see and be around the elite of our profession. And so what would you say are like from the people that you know and saw and your experiences, like the top three qualities of a champion trial lawyer or somebody that is currently one or somebody that is on that path, but they're like, okay, do I have the right stuff? Number one, integrity. If you think you're going to be the greatest trickster and win cases, do something else. Everybody I know that really succeeds at this does it from the heart, straight shooting. They bring integrity in the courtroom. They win because they're right, not because they can figure out a way to win when they're wrong. So integrity in front of the jury and with clients and in every phase of your life. Uh, so everyone I know is good at it has integrity. And the great news for that is, if you're coming to these seminars and you care enough, I bet you already got that one. You don't need to learn it. Your parents gave it to you. You're born with it. It's who you are. But we all know everyone doesn't have it. So it that is the number one, being able to be at peace with your integrity and don't feel like you have to sacrifice it because of this career. Just the opposite. You need to celebrate it. Second, and you've heard it a million times, but there no, there, there's no... This is hard stuff. So you've got to have that tenacity to work hard. And it's a tenacity that includes the work ethic. And there's a bit of managing fear. I almost said fearless. That wouldn't be accurate. Anybody says they're trying a case and I'm fearless. There's something wrong with them. They're either a sociopath or they're not telling the truth. The closer I get to verdict, more scared I get because I know the pain that's coming my way if it doesn't come my way, turn out my way. And that doesn't get any damn easier. It haunts you for the rest of your life. And that's a scary, scary thing. 
So it isn't about being fearless. It, tenacity is the willingness to do what it takes as far as the hard work, stay up late, do whatever it takes. Go to trial lawyer university and put in the hard work. Put in the hard work getting your case ready. Put it in in the middle of trial. That's tenacity and the ability to manage fear. Fear will do one of two things. It will either paralyze you or it'll motivate you. Use it as a blowtorch. I'm scared of losing. What else is it I can do to give myself the best chance of that not happening? It's highly motivational. Or you can just be, I'm settling on my case. I'm scared I'll lose. Manage your fear so it becomes an engine for justice, not something that derails justice. So integrity, tenacity. And then the last part of it is, I call it balance. This job, you have to figure out the balance of it, the equilibrium. Let's call it equilibrium. This career takes chunks of time, soul, probably longevity. It's a taker. It is a hungry beast that we do. You got to figure equilibrium. You got to figure out a way to be all in, not half. And then you got to find a half somewhere else for the rest of your life and your family. Otherwise, your kids resent you and your wives resent you, your husbands resent you. You have to find equilibrium so that you can excel and be great, which means give, give, give. But it doesn't mean, and then I'm going to live alone when I'm 80 because I run everybody else out of my life because there wasn't room for them. So how do you do that? It ain't easy. Part of it's include them. Include your spouse. Go home, talk about your cases. Get their input. By the way, you're not just doing it to appease them. They have great input. I never try a case without some, usually multiple things. I didn't do, I would have, but my wife, I told her, and she didn't like it. And at first I went, why? And then when she started talking about it, I go, shit, I think she's right. I don't ever say, all right, I won't do it because I won't make you happy. It's because she's right. Or include something. She sees it from a different perspective than I go. I say, shit, that's great. Hang on, hang on. She's talking to us. Wait, and I'm writing it down so I don't forget it. Include your loved ones. They will then be part of it. They'll have a stake in it. Doesn't mean they're not going to resent on the basketball games this afternoon in Little League or whatever, football, whatever it is. You can't be there. They got to make some sacrifices too. Daddy or mommy's got some shit they got to do. And you know what? Maybe at the time they won't be happy. Years later, they're going to look back and say, I respect what they did. But include your family and respect. It's hard on them too. Don't take that for granted. Like say, I got to work tonight. So I'm coming home at six. From six to eight, it's my family time. We're having dinner. And if we want to all talk about the case, great. But it's about y'all. Eight o'clock, kids are getting over here. Your wife's doing whatever, or husband, or whatever they're doing. They got some stuff to do. You've watched a show. You're completely there. And now things are starting to naturally go. Now, from eight till 10, I'm going to do that two hours of work. You have to, with forethought, find equilibrium. So you have a full career and a full life. It's one of the hardest things we have to do. But it's worth 
Don't just think it's going to happen. Design it, just like you would have closed an argument. Design a full life. But it doesn't mean, all right, I'm just not going to work that hard because my family's too important. You can do that and just accept you're going to be okay as a lawyer. And that's fine. There are a lot of okay lawyers that had great careers and enjoyed it. But if you want to excel, it takes more than that. And if you want to keep the loves of your lives loving you, find a way to make it all happen. And there are there is a path. There's a path. It just takes work. So the fear thing you brought up just kind of made me reflect back when I, uh, you know, like doing these conferences, because the best metaphor can be made is like a trial. Because if you spend a year, years planning a trial, I maybe spend a year planning a conference, but there's so many moving parts. And there is fear, though, because you have to sign big contracts, you know, for close to some of these in the Vegas, like a million dollars, because we're doing Caesar's Palace in October 2024. That's a lot of money for me. Things go sideways. And people decide, oh, you know, I'm tired of conferences. Or, you know, speakers are like, oh, I'm busy. You know, I mean, everything, you just never know. But it's like all these variables that, come together like there's just this fear and this like i remember just losing sleep for weeks at a time out of fear that i just had to change my mindset say wait a minute the future will either you either have faith or fear you can either believe in yourself and then you know and take appropriate actions which for me is what building the program calling people up letting them know what the program is going to be like why i think it's gonna be so great why i think it'll be life-changing for them and all the people are going to meet what they're going to learn and just work on it 12 hours a day. And it's amazing that when you stay focused and you believe, because then you have to take the journey anyways. Once, you know, you have a trial date or once I sign these contracts, I got to take the journey. There's no getting around the journey. And there's no like, oh, I don't know if I feel like doing it or, you know, things aren't going quite the way I want them to do. No, it doesn't matter. It's like you're in. But once I started to manage and believe more, because after doing for a couple of years, Maybe the first successes you have, you think, God, I got lucky, or could I do it again? But as you get a little, then you're like, okay, I know what I did. I'm going to redo that, and I'm going to do it better. And these are the chances I made mistakes, just like you made that mistake. And I made these mistakes. I made these errors in judgment, and I'm going to do better, and I'm going to have the best. You're going to be a better trial, you know, a better trial lawyer or conference put together person. It's like the fear is so real, though, and letting people down. Like, I got a thousand lawyers that'll be disappointed if things don't go well, or I'll have a bunch of, you know, 70 speakers who, who took time for their lives to come mentor people, yet there's nobody in the audience because bad marketing and or exhibitors who are coming to hopefully connect with lawyers to do business and then they're disappointed. All these disappointments, I can't take it. So that's a lot of pressure, you know, so it's like just like the people's lives. It's, and you know what? I say it isn't for everybody, but if it oh. is, then it's pretty cool. It, the fact you can manage that kind of stress and excel in it, it's fulfilling. It's not like, hey, look at me. It's, hey, when no one's looking at me, look at me. I'm doing the work. <laughs> I can do this and I can do it well and I can do, yeah. and not a lot of people can do this. Right. It's not at all haughty or high-minded. It's satisfying to say, hey, I feel good about me. I can do this and I can do it well in spite of all that stress and pressure and fear. And so, Learning to manage the fear is more than just success on that case. It's success in life. And it you look back, you know, you start to get older like him. You look back and go, I got things I'm disappointed in myself. I wish I'd have done this or that. But overall, you know, I'm not doing so bad. And that's a good feeling because not everyone feels like that at the end of their life. So I will always come back to, I don't give a damn how hard this is and how many times my heart has been broken. 
Hallelujah for it. I hear you. Well, let me ask you, my nephew, Harrison, he works for a buddy of mine. He's waiting for his bar results. But let's say, because, you know, most likely he'll be at the Art of Outsmarting, which is, I think, November 29th and 30th with you, Pansh, and Raleigh in Santa Monica. Is that right? I'm so excited. It started just me. I did one in Orlando, and I did one in New York City. We want to do a West Coast when we set it up. We decided to expand it from one day to two. And I love it because I always feel when I put on a seminar or a webinar or something, it's always very limited. And that gave me a whole day to spread out. And I felt if you're going to give of your valuable time, I want to give you something that made it worth your while. And if I want to give you something, I don't want to give you one thing. I want to give you everything I can get. And to have all day, I could do it. That was the whole idea behind it. In the New York event, in the Orlando event, great successes. I felt very good. I accomplished what I wanted to. But we decided, let's spread it out over two days. And then I got thinking over two days, I can fill two days with talking to you. But human nature is, you know, you get start getting tired of the son of a bitch after a while if he's the only one talking. And I thought, and I'm not the only one with ideas. I thought, because people have different styles and personalities and we need to be real. I don't want to pull it. I don't want to turn it into trial lawyers thing because I'm not in your space. It's an apples and oranges thing. This is kind of a mitnick trying to cram a bunch of stuff in. Yours is I want to bring in the best, best teachers from around the country. And I want to give you all kinds of perspectives for a long period of time, pick and shoot. It's a different animal. So I didn't want anyone else there because it defeated the purpose. But I thought two days, I want a fresh perspective here and there. And I want to give them a break from me some. And I immediately thought of, of um, Panis, who's a dear friend of mine. And I consider him one of, the, I, I say that they're great lawyers. They're some of the best. And then I say, there's one of the best of all, all time. And that's banished to me. He's just so fucking good at it. So, and he's a friend. But he tries a lot of cases. I called and said, Brian, can you do this thing? Did you do a slot in the afternoon? He said, yeah, sure. So I feel like, you know what? People that are coming and giving their valuable time just got better. And then I thought, I'd love to have Nick come too. And he's a dear friend. I'd hire him in a heartbeat to represent me and my family. He's such a badass lawyer. And great person. So I called him and he said, yeah. So he and I are going to do one on the first day together on the stage. I kind of, it's a face-to-face thing for me. We're going to address some critical topics that are universally applicable. People can use all over the place. And I'm going to say, here's how I did it. Pass him the baton let it, or the mic and let him do it. And it, it's going to be different. It's going to be complimentary, but we're going to get to the same point, two different paths. And I thought, what a great way for people to see different styles. And look, you may say, I'm not going to do the Raleigh's got all that charm. I'm not going to do the Mitnick. He's got that Southern thing and he's kind of a bull. I'm not either. But, you know, between the two points, I can triangulate and go, that's me in the middle. So I thought this is going to be great. So they get a full blast of Panish by himself. And they get this triangulation thing here. And all in between, I'm going to give you everything I got. And, and people, I just want to say one thing if you're listening to this. If you're thinking, yeah, but I've heard it. And I've read his books. And it's always entertaining. But I know that. I promise you. I'm not bringing. Will there be some overlap? Of course. Some of it fits into everything I do, like the trial I just did. But I promise you, I've got a bunch of brand new stuff or Stuff I did before that has changed dramatically, so it might as well be brand new. I have really had a a year of epiphany. Even since the Orlando event that was like a year ago, I just totally revamped. It's not 
Orlando, New York, three. It is fresh, new, different, total different approach to the format. So I'm excited. I hope we got a cool venue. I hope people come. And one thing, I'll make this promise. If you figure out a way to get there, you will not be anything other than feeling that was worth my time. And my time's worth a lot, meaning I plan to give you a lot. And I'm fixing to do Ambrose's thing in Huntington Beach. I was worried they were too close together. And I thought, it's way out compared to mine's coming in November. Yours is when's yours? June 5th through 8th, 2024. You got seven months to try eight cases and get a whole bunch of new material and it'll all be fresh again. Let me tell you what I won't do. I will not come to Trial Lawyers University in Huntington Beach and just do a rehash of what I'm fixing to do. I promise you there's going to be new stuff. My pants are going to be on fire to share with y'all out there. So I'm looking forward to it because you're for the big events. No one does it any better. Wow than what you do. Thanks. I appreciate the that. The people you bring in, the professionalness of the whole setup and the quality of your speakers and the engagement of your audience, it's a gift to the audience and the speakers. That's why Panish and me and Free and everybody, all these people come and participate in it because we all know it's going to be a fantastic experience for us too. So That's my goal. If you're going to try and share, you like to share with people that get it, and care about it, and pack a room. And we're going to have the big trifecta if you're putting it on, guarantee it. As far as your art about smarting, though, what is the website that people can go and register? Do you have that off the top of your head? I'll tell you the easiest thing. They can email me at kmitnick at forthepeople.com. I'm not sure the exact website. Okay. The letter K, last name M-I-T-N-I-K, not N-I-C-K. Mitnick at ForThePeople.com and just say, I'm interested. Can you connect me? And I will get the link, forward you the link so it's very easy. You can go on it, see it, and register it. That's probably the easiest way. Great, because I don't want people to be frustrated. And I'm not in trial this week, so if you send me, I'll respond right away. All right. Because, by the way, it is, we got limited capacity, and there's still seats there, but it's it's getting closer. So if you are interested... I don't want to be a hard salesman, but sooner rather than later would be a good thing. Yes. And I know the hotel is sold out, but the Viceroy, which is right nearby, which was recommended, is has rooms and is very reasonably priced. Yeah, it's much less expensive. Much less expensive, like half price. Because I've had people say there are no rooms left at your price and they're charging a bunch for rooms. There. And our people said Viceroy, way less. And it's I'm told it's a cool property. And it's right there. Yeah, it's nice out there. So as far as like advice, though, my nephew, he's going to be there at your Art About Smarting with Sanchez because, you know, he's going to be. Make sure he comes up and says hi and tells me who he is. Oh, he is. Don't you trust me? He knows who you are. But let's say he comes up to you and says. No, I mean, tell me who he is. Tell him about the relationship so I know it's him. Got it. Because we'll be there. But let's say he comes up to you and says, you know, Mr. Mitnick, you're a great lawyer. And I've learned a lot from you. But. I need to know, I want to be a great lawyer one day. In fact, I'm sure that once I put myself and get some time, I'm going to be better than you, but I don't know where to get started. And I need some good advice because it sounds like you've had a good career. So, and again, and of course the way kids are these days, they don't want to wait 30 years either. So they want to get there as quickly as possible. Like your son, Jacob, he doesn't want to wait till he's 65 to 
be crushed. And they, they want to crush when they're 30 because it's more fun when you can crush when you're young. So what advice do you give them? Nowadays, I didn't want to wait till I was 30 either. We, none of us did. So but what advice do you give a young lawyer? Because I know you're mentoring about 700 lawyers over there at Morgan & Morgan. So yeah, I'll tell you. If you get on the right track, he's just waiting for his bar results too. So you got this kid right at the beginning of the career. I love it. They're the love of my life. I just, the young sponges that have talent, I would rather spend time teaching them to try a case. And that's saying a lot. I get such joy out of watching that process. And I'm hoping someday I have people out there that say, like I did my mentors when they're passed on, boy, they made a difference. I know they're going to say it about you, Ambrose, because you're doing it at such a mass level with these programs you're putting on. But anyhow, the advice, I got to go two paths. One of them is, well, let me start with the fear factor. And, but it's easy to say, don't be scared. Okay. Well, if you're, it's like telling me, don't be scared to stand up and play a guitar and sing in front of people. I'm scared of shit because I don't know what I'm doing and I don't want to embarrass myself. And you can't tell me not to be scared. I'm going to be more scared. But I'm going to give you a little piece and then I want to bring it back to something more practical. The practical, what I would call repetition done right. Repetition done wrong is maybe worse than no repetition. It's got to be done right. But repetition lowers the stress level because there becomes a, your mind starts to feel comfort. It becomes like muscle memory. And then the stress comes down. And so, well, let me just start there. And I'll go back to the, a little bit of peace of mind stuff. Repetition done right. I don't golf anymore. I gave away my golf clubs 30, maybe more years ago. And here's why. I sucked. And I don't like sucking at things. I was a good football player. I was, believe it or not, a pretty good basketball player. I actually started on my team, not because I could shoot. I couldn't shoot for shit. But I was the middle linebacker on the court. If I was guarding you, you were going to suffer. Um, and got too many rebounds for a guy that was under six foot. But I was used to being good at stuff. I was a good student. I did golf. It's the, one of the few things i ever done I didn't give a shit if I was good at. We were just going out in law school. I'd never done it. We just were going out, drinking beer, and racing around in the cart and having fun. I'll leave it at that. And anyhow. And then I did it a lot. And so I got a bunch of bad muscle memory. I didn't do anything right. I did it with gusto and had fun, but it wasn't worth the shit. Then I got out of law school and all my friends I was golfing with were good to some degree. You know, they were to me good. They may not be good to someone who's really good. Some of them are really good, you know, scratch golfers. But most of them were just, they would actually hit the ball and it would go down the fairway straight. I never did that. And so I started feeling like I was aggravating to them because I was slowing them down. I was so bad, it was annoying. And now suddenly, it wasn't just out getting drunk and having fun. I'm now not having fun. So I thought, let me go take some lessons and learn to do it right. Well, I'd done it so many times wrong. I started taking lessons. I got worse because now all I'm doing is thinking about it, trying to relearn it all. And I finally gave my damn clubs to one of my good friends. I said, here's a spare set if you have company. And I haven't swung other than a putt-putt with grandkids. I haven't swung any club since. The golfing world is better off. But what did I do wrong? What if I'd have taken those lessons when I started? I'd be golfing today. It's repetition 
done right. So if you can come and listen to me speak or read my book or you go to Dan's programs or have Dan's teaching methods that he uses where you're doing it over and over, but you're doing it under the guidance of doing it right, like that golf instructor. Then once you get it and it starts mentally kind of clicking where you don't have to think it so much, now it becomes yours. Now's when you take off and you don't have to wait till you're 30, but it isn't going to happen first time out. You got to pay your dues some. You got to do the practice and the hard work, but do it right and do it early because suddenly someone who's been doing it 15 years is going to look at you who's been doing it three years and go, what the hell? Where'd that come from? This is a fucking trial lawyer. So it isn't a long haul. But you can't short the process. The process has just got to be done. But the beauty is the old way was try one case a year. And when the hell are you going to get all the repetition? Now there are ways to get repetition. Dan's a primary one. There are not a lot of ways, but they're there. And you got people willing to share like me or Rowley and, and Panish and Friedman, and I can go on and on, who are sharing, maybe not in the hands-on, back and forth, like Dan's program, but they're giving you tools so you have some peace of mind. So take advantage of the process and all the parts that are available to you. Now, they're a lot more available than there was when I was coming up. I just landed with people that gave me the process. Make the process, find the process, make it work, do the work, do it hard, do it with commitment, and do it right. And you're going to get there so much quicker. But don't be impatient to the, be impatient for God's sake, but not to the point you skip the process. Are you going to be me giving a golf bag away years later? Don't be that one. And so that's the main one. And the other piece of it is this, and I've said this before, but I want to share it with you on managing the fear. And I know I can't say it and take it away, but I can give you a perspective that might lower the heat a little. You still got to work the process. And it's this perspective. We think, we judge ourselves, especially as baby lawyers, by watching guys been doing it forever. You watch something with me. Wow, that's, how am I going to do that? Well, you're not going to do it like that now. I didn't do it like that when I was your age. But so then the answer is, what business have I got representing my client if I can't do it like that? So how am I ever going to get there? I'm screwing my client if I do it now. And if I don't do it now, I'm never going to get there. Well, here's the answer. Number one, you can do it ways like with Dan isn't a real client yet. And that's a beautiful path. But there's another path, not another. There's something to add to the mix. Remember this, you're measuring your performance the wrong way. It is not about being pretty, meaning it's not about being polished and perfect. Polished and perfect is a something we aspire to. It's an aspiration. You ought to. You ought to want the lawyers in the room, the court reporter, the judge, the bailiff, the jurors to go, the audience go, wow, I just saw a great lawyer. Who the hell doesn't want to be that? Strive. But all of that is for you. And you're not there for you. You're there for the client. And how do you serve the client? By delivering a winning package with sincerity and integrity and honesty. 
You got to straight shoot and bring a winning packet. And here's the beauty. You can be nervous as shit. Stumble, stagger, voice go high, forget where you're at, have to look at notes, all the things that you would not watch as a lawyer go, whoo, I'm impressed. <laughs> and win big justice all fucking day. Because the jury likes a good show, but at the end, once they get in panel and everyone stands when they walk in the room and stands when they leave the room and they start feeling the weight of this thing we call justice. It starts meaning something to them. And so they like the entertainment, but they're there for serious something. They're going to be with them for the rest of their lives. They want to get it right. And guess what? You know how much stress and pressure there is of performance anxiety when you're preparing the package? Uh, the bright lights of the courtroom aren't on. The jury isn't there. No one's watching you got all the time in the world and you have time to access people who have been there and figured it out can help you create the winning package. You say, here's what I, I think we ought to present the case. No, let me tell you this. You, oh, you talk to someone else. I like that, but, but next thing you've massaged work, reworked through it, out, started over. And now I got a winning, unassailable package and I can do it young because I didn't have to do it alone. And there is no stress of performance there. You're not performing. You're preparing. Then you walk in court and you deliver the package and you stutter and stammer and have to read some of it. And no one gives a shit because you just delivered a winning package. They're not going to say, I'm, that all makes sense. You ought to win, but I'm going to screw you because you stammered. They're not going to do it. In fact, if you're young, stuttered, and stammering, it may help you. You're charming. You're, they're pulling for the underdog. You're adorable. I know you want to be a Doberman, not adorable, but for God's sake, embrace being a sweet chihuahua for a while. Everybody loves chihuahuas. I'm sorry. Wrong. Wrong. I don't like chihuahuas and all those nappy things. Wrong dog. Wiener dogs. Everybody loves them dogs. <laughs> to wiener. That's true. Chihuahuas bark too much. So yeah, I, I, said, well, I don't like to. I love dogs. I see a chihuahua. They look like little rats to me. I'm sorry to all that have chihuahuas. People yeah, they love got mean teeth. A lot of them grr all the time because they're so tiny. And they're horrible breath. Horrible. Worst dog breath ever. <laughs> so I meant to say wiener dogs, them dachshunds. They're just goofy and lovable. Anyhow, my point is embrace your lovableness. You'll be a killer one day. And by the way, don't ever lose your lovableness. But my point is, long way to say. It's not about being pretty or polished. It's about the package and it's about you delivering it as, with, with the truth on your side. And they can tell you mean it. Your heart's in it. You believe it. You brought your belief. And you know how much you need to learn about having integrity and shoot straight? Once again, just like, just like preparing the package, there's no stress. You don't have to learn integrity. Just don't lose it. Hold on to it. Celebrate it in the courtroom, be it. So if you take those two principles, you're ready now, so long as you access people that can help you with the package, because you probably aren't ready to do the package. Read my books. They're going to help you do it. Talk to other people, because other people have, I don't want to be right, I want to get it right. Talk to, get your package, and then walk in there and give yourself as much peace of mind as you can. I know it's easier said than done. I'm not doing it polished. 
It's okay. I'm not going to do it polished. I'm setting the bar delivering the package with integrity. And everything else at this point is beyond my reach, and that's okay. I want to get there. I don't need it to win, which means I don't have to choose between I don't want to screw my clients, so I'm not going to try cases. I need to try cases so I can learn to be good. You can try the case, and your client will get great representation. You just aren't going to be on Dan's show, but we're not going to be on Court View TV saying, look at how, woo, watch this. It's okay. You get a verdict for your client or you give them the best, a really good shot at it because you did it with integrity and it went in package. You've done your job as good as I would do my job or Nick Rowley or maybe not Pam's or Friedman. <laughs> I mean, because that damn big booming voice of, you can't, I don't, you, none of us are going to have Panis's voice. But anyhow, my point is, it's not about being pretty. It's about being real and being ready. And then repetition the right way. Long answer, but you've asked a question that goes to the heart of something that matters deeply to me. Like in today's world, though, I mean, I always say it's the best time to be a trial lawyer because if you don't get to greatness, there's no reason except you chose not to do the work, period. Because, you know, there's obviously your books, but like on TLU On Demand, my platform, every live event, whether it's, you know, the first Vegas event you came to, that was eight tracks and lectures and 20 workshop tracks. And then the second year we had the same, another eight lecture tracks. And you did the Panish program last year in uh, Marina Del Rey. And I've done this program in Huntington Beach twice and all of these conferences are recorded and they're all on TLU On Demand, every lecture and over like 325 webinars on from you, Rowley, Dodd, Little Page, Begin. I mean, there's so many great trialers that have shared so much knowledge and it's available at your fingertips because it's all on an app now too, instead of having to sit in front of a computer. So, you know, as far as getting the knowledge, the base, that's there. And there's this book called Peak by this guy named Andres Erickson, which is really about the science of high performance. What you're talking about rings true because he talks about applying the, the principles of deliberate practice to master something. And with trial lawyering, it's a little more difficult because there's really no consensus on the skills that one needs to acquire to become a great trial lawyer. But I had the privilege of sitting here in this chair for a couple of years during the pandemic as it ebbed and flowed and get mentored and get to study the greatest trial lawyers in the country. And we know what I realized from doing that is, you know, you really need three things to become, to get a big verdict. First, you need a good case, right? You got to have a good case with that's been put together well, because not to be political, but I would say this isn't Trump world. You can't just make facts up and expect him to be believed. But when you have the good case, then you need trial strategy, which is, you know, we learn from reading books, listening to people like you and Panish, hiring trial consultants, doing focus group, trying cases. You know, you got to you get that thousand pieces of evidence, whatever it is, and you got to whittle it down to a hundred and then put them in the right order and question everything right. But the thing that I found that the most, the, all the great trial lawyers really focus on, which you talk about is their connection with the jury. It's all about the jury. You talk about the reactions to you and they, they nod and they get it. That's the whole game is the connection game. And, sure. and that's what I really started working on because Connection is a subtle thing in front of a jury because they know you want something from them. And most people are a little nervous and it's hard to connect when you're nervous. And you use this golf analogy, which I just found so, because I'm just learning to play golf. 
and it's not easy. And I go out there and I practice a few times a week. And, and you talk about like learning the fundamentals. Like you're talking about learning it right from the beginning, like how to hold the club, how to stand, and what a proper swing looks like and having a correct mental representation of a proper swing. And then picturing that every time and doing it over and over and over and over until you can do it without thinking, which is where you need to get any skill set to so we can do it without thinking. And talk about the skills of connection, which is, you know, I think appropriate eye contact, facial expression control, because they're always staring at your face. And what's it telling them? Slowing your voice down so that making sure they can process it. Your hands are so important when you're talking to people because naturally they move, but when people are nervous, they do this crunching things and all this weird stuff. They don't even realize until somebody records them. And so people that want to learn these skills, there's places to learn these skills now. I mean, I've been developing this myself for I've like 40, I think I've taught this three-day course I developed like 43 times. So I feel like I'm getting good at this teaching these skills. And I get so excited because we do it like once a month at my place here in Vegas. And it's just so exciting when you see a transformation of a person in their confidence, in their calmness. And because so much of it is that and just getting the foundation and practicing, but doing something deliberate when you're practicing, not just getting up there and whatever, shucking and jiving, but like being focused and you know, it's just so important and to get a good mentor. And it's not easy. Hard. It's hard work. Look, when I was growing up, you could go read Mo Levine and that was about it. Right. There just wasn't a lot. Now the resources are fantastic. And then figure out what works for you. But you got to have some structural, you got to approach it with structure and purpose and repetition. Yes. And you're right. In a courtroom, that connection with the jury is everything. 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 You got to make the eye contact. You got to be aware they're watching you all the time. Every move you make. When you're up at the bench with arguing something sidebar, you think they're not watching? If it's going bad and you're up there going, they're seeing you get your ass kicked. If you're getting your ass kicked up there, be just happy and smiling while you're thinking, Judge, that's bullshit. They're watching. If you're going to object right. to a juror question, you're in a state where they get to write out questions and you're objecting, don't be up there animated. And they're going, he's fighting my question. You want to be nodding? Yeah. And if they're by saying you can't ask that judge. And then if they're objecting and they're animated, take a step back. Let the jury have a clear line of sight to see them up there arguing about their question. When you walk, you object. You know, how you object. If you knock the thing over the table over the mic over and scream but yeah they know something really bad's happened sorry judge i hate to interrupt but can we approach you don't want to object leading you know what it sounds like oh well you shut up so we can get done say objection your honor the lawyer suggesting the answer to the witness now they go hey that ain't right you know you got to be aware of the presence of the jury when you're up writing on a flip chart don't put your ass towards them and be you know bending all over and blocking them be aware of, can they see, and where are you physically? And like Dan said, it made me laugh. I'm thinking about my very first case ever tried. I was still in law school, and it was some program where you could go to the public defender or state attorney's office under the guidance of a real lawyer, even though you weren't even out and not barred in, on a misdemeanor case and try a jury trial. And my guy that was supposed to mentor me got a private job, and I'm over there trying a damn case by myself, still in law school on some misdemeanor. and. I had change in my pocket. And of course, you can imagine, I'm scared as shit. I don't know if I can do it. I've, I've said since I was in elementary school, like I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. Well, I'm about to be a lawyer in front. I don't know. No one's there to help me. I don't know what I'm doing. And 
I'm scared. And I'm thinking, this is the moment of truth. What if I can't do it? Now, now what? I'm in law school. I've done all this and I can't do it. And you don't know it when you do it. I thought I could, but it's like, you can quit talking, buddy. This is it. And I got up and delivered a closing argument. And I got a not guilty. And I said, you could do it. Yay. And I was the, felt so good. And the guy who was supposed to be sitting up trying the case with me gave me the courtesy. Of my, I had seven jury trials. He came for the first one and sat in the back, not at the table, in the back. So he's no good other than on a break, I could go talk to him. And then after that, I was on my own. So I finished closing argument. Jury goes out. I go back and say, well, how was it? He goes, good, but. And you know, when you hear but, here comes the dumbass. So he said, but you were jiggling change in your pocket the whole closing. And I thought, I started to say, no, I wasn't. I went, yeah, I was. Guess what? What's it been 40 years ago? More than that, because I was in law school. You will not find any in my pocket ever again in front of a jury. And it was just nerves. And I'm over there rattling, 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 rattling in my pocket, which is having your hand in your pocket is not a good thing anyhow. They're watching. So that connectivity, I'm interfering with it. It's like someone banging cymbals while I'm trying to connect. <laughs> so, and that was nervousness. But you're not going to get rid of nervous like that. But if you, with purpose, repetitive, and you come in and say, I don't have to be perfect. But I don't have to be perfect to make eye contact. I don't have to be perfect to be mindful. I don't want to be making the wrong gestures. I'm a flapper. I use it. And I'm always saying, unflappable, unflappable. They do something, they cheat, they do something. I want to knock the table over and beat their ass on the way to the bench. It's not right. I've had to teach myself, no matter how mad I'm on the way, unless I want the jury to see I'm mad. That's different. But if I'm on the way up and I don't want it, I want to be in control, unflappable, and I'm a flapping son of a bitch, I am consciously today, 40 years later, saying unflappable. And I will make myself walk slower to the bench rather than charging up there because I'm in control and they can't hurt me. That's just an awareness of who you're speaking to. That's that connectivity. And connectivity isn't just eye contact. It's a recognition you're always being watched. And you want to communicate why you're being watched the right thing. Now, are you going to be perfect at it? Hell no. I knew they were watching me when I lost my cool with that damn expert and asked the question I knew not to that gave him a huge free shot to punch me in the nose. I know better. That's the other thing. Strive to be good at it. Don't strive to be perfect at it because you're not. And guess what? I'm 40 years into it. I'm still learning. And guess what? That's not bad. What if I just had it all figured out and I just keep doing it over and over and over? That'd be zero challenge. That wouldn't be any fun. Boring. That's why I see this thing I'm doing coming up in Malibu. It's not Malibu. Where the hell are we? Santa Monica. Santa Monica, where the Bay of Farrow Santa Monica, another beach city right near Malibu, down the A1A. That's why I say, please don't say I saw you in Orlando or New York. I don't need to see the same thing again as much as I enjoy it. It ain't going to be the same thing. You know why? Because I don't stand still. That's the fun. He's going to teach you. I'll teach you. Others will teach you. And you're going to get good at it. And you're going to love it. And then you're not going to hit a plateau and say, all right, I got good at it, but that's it. You're going to keep getting better at it and changing it. And so all the way to when you finally say, I'm done. 
It is such a never-ending journey of improvement. And who doesn't like getting better? So it is exciting. It's most fun to get better. And from teaching perspective, or like I'm more of a guide for the most part, but to help people find the information, find the access, improve, win. There's nothing better than watching people win or being somewhat contributing to their journey of of being a winning trial lawyer. Because we know what being a losing trial lawyer feels like. And we know the difference of being a winning trial lawyer. And it's like night and day between the two. Oh, and don't forget, on a side note, October 16th through 19th, 2024, we're doing Caesar's Palace. That's going to be like the first one you came to, but I'm much better at organizing these things because we have, because Caesar's Palace is older casino here, but it's just been remodeled. Actually, I can see it out my balcony every day because I live in Vegas now across from the Strip. So every day I see the, the lights of Vegas and see Caesar's Palace and visualize what that event's going to be. Because like Huntington Beach, that's going to be four lecture tracks and seven workshops. And last year we had 550 people there. So I think this year will probably be closer to a little bit bigger than that. I'm guessing maybe 800 or so, maybe more. Well, if you're coming too, I mean, then we're going to expect at least a 200 person boost. And then you kind of, you know, then we got the other superstars. I'm going to come and bring the hottest. I'm going to bring the uh, hot off the press. Yes. Oh, I know. I'm excited. And your buddy Raleigh and Panish and just so many great trialers coming to teach and to learn. And that's why I really like, you know, I mean, these programs when people really come to learn, it's not just some of the programs where people just use it as a vacation. They sign up for the program, but they never actually attend the program. There's usually like 20 people in the class, even though 500 have registered that we don't, you know, I mean, people come to our thing, so they really want to learn it. So that's exciting. It's like John, my partner, John Morgan says, he wrote the book, You Can't Teach Hungry. You have an audience of hungry. Yes. We need to feed them constantly. So we're going to feed them in Huntington Beach, June 5th through 8th, and then Vegas. And uh, so trialersuniversity.com is where to find all this stuff, one location. And I'm looking forward to seeing you live and my other friends. Because, you know, Nick Raleigh and I go way, way back to 2005. Old school. 2005. We were roommates at the Trial Lawyers College. Somehow they put us together. And and that was an interesting combination. I mean, think about that. That was 18 years ago. And then Nick invited me to come watch him speak at Cala, Consumers Attorneys of Los Angeles, back in like 2013, 2012, because it was his first time speaking there. And he was very proud and excited about it. And I'm like, I know nothing about this world, right? I'm a criminal defense lawyer in Michigan. I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do there? He's like, just come on, man. It's going to be so much fun. I'm like, fine. And so I came out here and I like, wow, this is a lot more fun than being a criminal defense lawyer in Michigan. As soon as I saw these people and met some friends here, like, I got to move to California, but somehow be getting to this game because the game I'm playing, you at least you had a good mentor who told you, don't go into criminal law. <laughs> it's heartbreaking and it doesn't pay. And it's so stressful. Like, the civil stuff's stressful, but when you look at a person you think is innocent and charged with like a child sexual abuse or something like that, which is like the most horrific crime a person could be charged with, boy, it takes everything you got. And it's just, but anyway, so I'm just glad that even though it took me a long time to find the civil world, I think I was 45 when I moved to California. I'm glad I found it. I'm thankful for Nick, thankful for you and Panish. I got to become friends with him during the pandemic. Such wonderful people. So it's been a real blessing and I appreciate it all. You've done a service and are still doing a service to people and all of us appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you at your event and everyone else there. And 
next month in November. I hope if you're not signed up, you think about coming because I promise I've reworked this thing. It's going to be fresh. It's going to be new. And it's only going to be the stuff that I believe hearing it and applying it to your own styles can improve your chances of winning. It's going to be fluffless. There's going to be no fluff. We're getting down to business. We're going to have fun. But I'm going to give you everything that I've learned that I think's made a difference. And for whatever reason, in this time span from the event in Orlando to the event we're fixing to do in Santa Monica, I've just had a bunch of opportunities to reinvent some things and epiphanies. Some of them I'm like, how the hell didn't you think about that before? But they're ones... I'm so excited about it. Our lawyers in our firm are sick of hearing me talk about it. They can't shut me up about it because I know I don't want to talk about it for the fun of it. I know it's going to make a difference between them winning and losing cases. I can put them in brushstrokes and writing and stuff. I want to get out there, roll up our sleeves and really get to the nut and bolts of it because what I'm hoping is not just show you what the new stuff works, but why it works and how, where did they come from? What was the thought process that led to them? Because I really think I can get that out there. You can create your, a bunch of your own epiphanies, and I'm wanting you to send them to me. I could not be more excited about this. I think it's going to be the best thing I've ever done. And then I hope I do even better in my slot when we get to uh, yours uh, on basically close to a year. Oh, absolutely. How are you not going to do better? You're going to have eight more months to refine your stuff. I mean, come on. If you're learning every day and trying new stuff and practicing stuff every day and teaching others every day, you have to be getting better every day. So if we give you a seven-month gap to improve your stuff, you clearly got to be better because we're not staying the same. So we're going to have our best show ever in Santa Monica at the end of November and then in Huntington Beach in June and then finally in Vegas in October because that gave you all that time to keep working on your stuff and get better and then a platform to share it. See? Let's do it. It's going to be perfect. All right, Keith. Thanks so much. Right, well, it was a blast. It was. It's so great to see you again. And I'll see you in November. Thanks. All right. We'll do it. Bye. Bye. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University, produced and powered by LawPods.